as a Bronze Era Israelite, just two generations removed from the Exodus, his life is marked by one word, it's survive. He's a husband now and a father of five, and he carries the responsibility heavy. Shoot, he was raised on stories about what things were like in the Great Famine before Joseph had rescued everyone. He remembers the time the locusts came through and destroyed the entire harvest. He'll never forget how scared his father looked, how thin the cattle got, and what it was like to go days on end with no food. Those days have marked him. He understands how cruel and undiscerning mother nature could be. And so he has built a life of work and survival to make sure that horrible things that he's seen happen never happen again in the future to him and the ones he loves. He's structured his life around the work that must be done. Long, hard days to stay out and front of everything and ensure the survival of he and his family. He followed the wisdom of his grandfather who said, make sure you have lots of children because many hands can carry the work and the more you work, the more you'll produce. The more you produce, the more you can save and the more you save, the more likely you are to survive. So the family's been structured around the work that has to be done to ensure their survival. Everyone has their own job, their own piece of the pie together. They work together on that farm and that land to ensure that everyone will make it. Recently, Dan has been missing church, though. The long, hard days have kept him out of church for a long time. Call it a conviction. Call it the Spirit of God weighing on his heart. But there's a part of him who misses it. He knows his neighbor goes week in and week out to the tabernacle. And they sparked up a conversation one time. And his neighbor told him how great this new pastor is, Ezra. He brings the scriptures to life. He knows the word of God. You should come listen to him. And so together they have this habit of bringing their families down the three-mile walk to the tabernacle they get everything ready and he spends a little time at church and then they come right back home and get back to work so they're ready when the new week begins but recently he's been following along with these teachings and really enjoying them Ezra has been taking everyone through the book of Exodus and he's found it all so engaging and so helpful it reminds him of where he came from and the teaching is practical what do you do when someone gets hurt on the farm and there's a dispute between neighbors what foods are clean and unclean what are the real dangers associated with worshiping the gods of these nations that surround us he's loved it all it wasn't until we 20, when he crossed his arms and began to scowl. Just like each day, Ezra came up and opened up that big scroll and began to read the words that we would call Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. It says, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you should labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, male servants, female servants, your livestock, the sojourner who is with you, within your gates. For six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that are in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day made it holy. Deuteronomy Dan was walking home with his neighbor from church and 
says, I think Ezra lost me today. I, I've got kids now. Man. You, you guys have got to be kidding me. I was loving where he was going, but to not work is just ridiculous because these kids' lives are on me now, and if something happens to them, I'm the one responsible. If we really slow down and do what he says, do you know what could happen to us? On that long walk back home, they go back and forth, and his neighbor says, I know this is going to be hard to believe, but we started doing this thing called Sabbath, and it's changed everything for us. And Dad says, that's good for you, but they go back and forth. And somehow, some way, by the time they get home, this neighbor has convinced Dan, let's just try it. Just give it a shot. Hey, I'll do it with you. It'll be a little challenge. We'll do it until Passover gets here, and we'll see. Just see what God does in your life. Somehow, Dan says yes. And the first Sabbath rolls around, and he's anxious. And on that first day, all he can do is walk back and forth and look at the fields that aren't being tended, look at the cattle that's not being cared for, look at the kids outside who are just playing and not working, although they kind of seem to enjoy it. That's how the first four weeks go. He's just anxious, too worried and unsettled to sit down. But on week five, his four-year-old daughter grabs him and pulls on the side of his little robe and says, Daddy, would you just come play with us for a little bit? He figures it'll keep his mind off of everything he has to do. And so he sits down in the dirt out in front of their home and plays dolls with the little homemade dolls that their mother had made for everybody. He actually laughed that day because his daughter had made her own little doll. It was actually a little dog and it looked more like a duck and they kept calling it the duck dog and everybody laughed about it and it was the first time ever his mind opened and he thought, you know what, this isn't that bad. About 10 weeks in, Everyone starts to look forward to these Sabbaths, these rests and these breaks. They notice they wake up the next morning a little more refreshed and more invigorated to go and do the work that needs to be done. They've developed a routine. They sleep in on their Sabbath, go down to the river. They swim as a family. They enjoy. They save the good wine and the good meat, and they make a great meal as a family. He and his wife stay up after the kids go to bed talking about their lives, being romantic and enjoying one another. The Passover comes and goes. He's supposed to be done with this habit, with this Sabbath, but he knows that it's been life-giving for him and everyone else in the family. He's 25 weeks in, and he's noticed that he's never missed a meal. The work keeps getting done, but the family's beginning to change. Before he realizes it, 52 weeks have gone by, and this habit of rest and Sabbath has transformed everything about this man. His relationship with his children is now flourishing. He and his wife are lovers again and not just co-workers. His back doesn't hurt so bad. He's less worried. God has been more present. He was like a dried up desert. And now his life looks more like a beautiful field of pomegranate trees. And the craziest thing happened when harvest rolled around. They went out to collect and to gather and to cut down and the neighbors came over to help just like they do every single year. And to his astonishment, it was the greatest harvest they had ever seen on his farm. And he has nothing to point to other than his God 
and this new practice of rest and Sabbath that he's instated in his family. Momentum, I tell you that to tell you this. We've got a mission at our church. We've been talking about it every single week. We want to be on mission. Our church's mission is to help people meet Jesus, know Jesus, and make the world better and brighter in Jesus' name. And I want to tell you something. The greatest threat to this mission, in my opinion, is not some typical sin that church likes to preach about from time to time. I do not think the greatest threat is going to be drinking too much, saying cuss, words and lying. I don't even think the greatest threat to our mission is going to be a lack of resources. I think the greatest threat to our mission is exhaustion. The flow of the culture around us is one of being out of balance, overwhelmed, overworked, and and basically just all out of sorts because of the quick pace of life. If there is a threat to our mission, it is that we as a church would get swept into the speed of culture. That speed would exhaust us and we would just become too tired to be the men and women that God is calling us to be and doing the things that God is calling us to do in Jesus' name. Let me, let me slow down and back into this. I knew it was time for us to rest when Legos got in on the hustle. They added a new page to the Lego book. Did you see that? If you got kids that have done some Legos, shoot, I'm not hating. If you've done some Legos yourself in the last few years, maybe you've noticed this, maybe not. They added a new page to Legos and I I saw that page and I knew it was time for us to rest. Back in my day, I grew up, we didn't have the Millennium Falcon and we didn't have the new ones and all that stuff. And, and I had the Robin Hood Lego set and they had their little bows and arrows, little Robin Hood hats and green outfits. And I made this tree house and I, I mean, the whole rest of the book looked the same as it does now. You open it up and it says open pack one and then you build all the little base and you're going to begin to build on top of the base. And then you go to the next page and it tells you put this here and then build all the figurines and start putting them on that base and then add the leaves and the trees and you know how it goes you have the book you follow the book and about 80 pages later you're done and that's how it used to be and the last page of the lego book used to be a picture of what it looks like when you finished your creation and so you would finish your creation you'd get to the last page you check it you go oh my goodness and then you would be done you would sit back and you would enjoy your creation. You would go, man, I did it. And then you'd destroy it and you'd rebuild it. You'd play with the little figurines within it. And you'd say, hey, mom, look what I did. And that was all there was to the Lego game. But they added a page. And you build the Millennium Falcon and you flip through all the pages and you follow all the steps. And then you get to the very end and there is the Millennium Falcon. But then you go, wait a second. There's another page in this book. And you turn the page, and on the next page, there's ads and new pictures of new Legos that you could do next. Gone are the days of you did it. Let's sit back and let's enjoy. And here are the days of, hey, there's more Legos you could do. And to me, it points at a word that is nestled into our culture that is driving all the anxiety and the overworking and the overwhelmedness. And it is the word more. 
The Lego book whispers to your children the word more. There's more you could do. There's more to be done. Don't stop. Now it's not just in Legos. You have workplaces that are ringing out their corporate environments saying, let's get more and more done on less and less resources so we create more and more profit. There's, you, you would ask people, hey, do you have enough to retire yet? When are you going to be done? And people just say, I need a little bit more. The word more is woven in our culture, driving the overwhelmed, overworked, anxious culture that we find ourselves in today. Now, here's what I'll say. More is running out of gas in our culture, and I love that. You go to most churches and you go, hey, would you think, do you think that you are living a life in the endless pursuit of more? And you'd go, no. And corporate culture, mobile workplaces, the four-hour work week, all kinds of books are being written that are trying to reject this word, and I celebrate that. But I'm telling you, our enemy is a crafty one. And I don't know if you notice this or not, but he switched out the word more for a new word, a more crafty word, a more, uh, a more innocent word that is just as damaging. The word is now potential. you got to live up to your potential. This company really has potential. Man, you don't want, you got to see your kids live up to their full potential. But here's the danger with potential. It works just like the word more and it takes you to the same exact place. Because when was the last time you saw someone or something reach their true potential? Because in pursuit of your potential, there's always more. So our schedules are loaded so everyone can reach their full potential. We drive 45 minutes on Thursdays both ways so our kid can reach his potential. I stayed out late five weeks last or five nights last week so our project could reach its potential. You have the potential to lose five more pounds. You have the potential to get five more followers or five more clients. You have the potential to help more people. But here's the other big problem with potential. Potential is not in the Bible. Go look for it. Potential's not in the Bible, but Sabbath is. And the idea of rest is. Guys, I'll be honest with you online, okay? I, I had, God has done so much in me through COVID and um, so much of what I've wanted as a pastor has changed. So much as what I wanted for momentum has changed as I've seen our world and the place of the church within it from so many new angles. And I'll tell you something, I used to have all these goals and things I wanted for momentum, but can I tell you something? One of my biggest goals for momentum right now is that we would be the most well-rested church in America. Number one, there are too many stories of burnout in the people of God that go right back to the church environment that they came from. And number two is simply this. In a world of exhaustion, we are not going to shine unless we are a people of rest. In a world of exhaustion, we must be a people of rest. In a world that is driven and enslaved to the endless pursuit of more, we have to be a people who say enough is enough and we are going to be a people of rest in a world marked by exhaustion. Who is going to shine in this day? It is people of rest in a world marked by exhaustion. And I'll tell you this, if our greatest threat is exhaustion, our greatest weapon is Sabbath, the idea of rest. Let me unpack Sabbath. If you're going, I don't use that word day to day. What are you talking about, Matt? I'll tell you a little bit about Sabbath. Jesus himself practiced Sabbath. 
It is a biblical practice of rest that is in both Old and New Testaments, Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, the life of Jesus over and over again. It is the idea of resting. It's spoken about most succinctly in Exodus, which we looked at earlier. Exodus 20, I'll read it again. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you should labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, your son, your daughter, male or female servants, or your animals, or any foreigner residing in your towns. For six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and then he rested. Now, it is the practice, let me tell you, it is the practice of once every seven days, taking one day for rest and replenishment. Um, the Sabbath, um, if you grew up like me, maybe you heard, you got to keep the Sabbath holy. Uh, and that meant, in my culture, go to church. But that's actually not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a day that would be marked by these four things. Stopping, resting, delighting, and worshiping. You are commanded by God to take a day where you stop. You stop working. You stop thinking about work. You stop trying to get ahead. You stop producing value. And you stop thinking about these things. The Sabbath is not just about your work. It is about your mind. It is you. I am taking a day where I am not thinking about how I'm going to get the ball down the field. And when the intrusive thoughts come, you go, sorry thoughts on the authority of God. I've been told I can't deal with you today. I'll be back tomorrow. But today I'm resting. It's a day of resting. And we'll get into this in a minute, but it should be a day where you rest your mind, your body, your soul. When you wake up the day after a Sabbath, you shouldn't feel guilty. You shouldn't feel uh, that you got to catch up. You should just feel rested. It is a day of delighting. It is a day where you fill your calendar. And again, we'll talk about this in a minute. Not with have-tos, but get-tos. It is a day of worshiping where you remember the God that is behind it all. You rest. In a world marked by exhaustion, we want to be a people of rest. So I'll tell you about the Sabbath, and honestly, unapologetically, I just want to make a case for it in your life as a believer. Number one, Sabbath is spiritual resistance in a culture that says it's all riding on you. See, we talked about the words potential and the words more and how destructive they can be in culture. And more than the physical exhaustion that they bring into your life, the spiritual depravity those two words will sneak into your life, I would say is more dangerous. Because more and potential move into your life and they pack theological bags about who's really running things. And when you believe that if I don't, then things won't, and we've got to make sure that it's all done, because if it's not all done, then bad things might happen, and it is on me to pull this. My hand is on this lever, and if that lever doesn't get pulled all the way down this week, then bad things might happen. And when I begin to think like that, I have sat myself down on a throne that belongs to God. I have made myself commander of the cosmos. I've said that this thing is all riding on me. And I'll tell you something. I wasn't made for that throne because there is a weight that comes with sitting on that throne that I was never made to carry. 
In a world that says more, in a world that says get more done, in a world that says if you just stay up a few more hours, write a few more papers, do it a little bit better, that you can live in your full potential. When I say no, I'm stopping. I'm offering spiritual, I am resisting a culture that says I'm supposed to be God. It's interesting because this pressure to produce is something that's felt inside and outside of the church. But in the corporate world and productivity culture, what people are doing is offering more and more and more tools that you can use to get your schedule under your control. I think that is a shallow and fragile substitute because the idea of Sabbath is when I say I'm going to put my schedule under God's control. Marva Dawn said it so well in saying on the Sabbath, we deliberately remember that we have ceased trying to be God and instead have put our lives back into his control. Concentrating on God's lordship in our lives enables us to return to his sovereign hands all the things that are beyond our control and terrifying us. Once those things are safely there, and as long as we don't stupidly take them back again, our emotions can find truly comforting healing and rest. See, Sabbath is when we reorder our lives to the rhythm at which we were always intended to live. That's what I'm talking about. And number two here, Sabbath is an unavoidable spiritual rhythm woven into the fabric of the universe. Let me tell you something. There's a part of you going, yeah, bud, I don't think that'd work. Like, we could do that once a month, maybe. I might be able to do that once a quarter, but you haven't seen my, I've got classes that I'm taking, a workplace to be at, a social life I'm trying to maintain, some kids, a marriage, some investments I'm trying to stay on top of, and I've got 10 things in my life that I am already doing poorly. I can't take time away and not do them. I get that. But it'll tell you you're going to do more harm than good by avoiding the way that God designed the universe to function. I'll go to Genesis. If you look at the days of creation, it's interesting. Day one, light and darkness. Two, sky, land, seas, and plants. You guys can read. Uh, sun, moon, and stars, animals. On day six, he makes mankind. In Genesis 2, we read about what happens next. It says, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God finished the work he had been doing. So what? On the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating he had done. Okay, so catch this. Go to the days. God does all of this, and then he rests. Now I'll point out two in incredibly important things that you'll notice in this rhythm. Number one, Adam and Eve, mankind's first day alive was a day of rest. They were enough. They were fulfilled. They had what they needed. Their first day on earth, God says, I want you to rest. And then from that rest, from that overflow, I want you to go and live your God-given purpose. Two, here's another thing to notice. This totally is backwards from the way that our culture has structured rest, because our culture will grant you rest once you've earned it. Oh yeah, go on the vacation when you've proven yourself by exhausting you and your family. 
Oh, take the extra day off when you've worked so much that you're sick and you can't come in. But that's simply not the way God designed the universe to work. A guy I listened to this week said, it's like God played music. The universe is like a great symphony with notes and tones and melody and song. He goes, you don't have to Sabbath, but just know you're going to be singing out of key. Because this is the way things were designed to work. There was a time um, called the French Revolution when they were trying to erase God from the picture and take him out of culture. And one of the things they did was, hey, maybe if we add some more days to the week, like let's switch from a seven-day week to a 10-day week, we could produce more. And uh, A.J. Zwoboda writes about what happens. He says, in 1793, France, in an effort to increase human productivity, de-Christianized the calendar by modifying the seven-day week to a 10-day week. New clocks were even invented to reflect the revised week. The experiment, however, radically failed. Suicide rates skyrocketed, people burnt out, and production decreased. Why? It turns out humans were not made to work nine days and only rest one in a week. They were made to work six and rest one. The seven-day rhythm is sacred. The seven-day week is not a result of human ingenuity. Rather, it is a reflection of God's brilliance. Let me give you one third reason I, I want you to Sabbath. Sabbath done right is a day stacked with joy. I'll speak to you again and tell you I get the resistance. that I, had, I have great mentors who have been trying to help me get this for years. And I think it took me about seven years to get it. So can I tell you, if this feels outlandish to you, I get it. I am ENTJ on the Myers-Briggs, and number three on the Enneagram. Productivity is my love language. I'm so messed up, I thought I was better than other people because my personality type was more productive than other folks, okay? I get what you're thinking right now, but this is what helped me get Sabbath. It's the idea of joy stacking. Sabbath done right is a day that you stack with your idea of total joy. See, uh, an obligatory Sabbath schedule would look something like this. 7 a.m., wake up with the alarm, finish breakfast and clean up. 9 a.m., we're going to do some family Bible study because this is supposed to be holy. 10, we can catch up on those chores that we haven't been getting done. 12, we could eat lunch, head to the grocery store so we actually have groceries figured out for the week. 4 p.m., do the reading that I've been behind on for my community group. 5 p.m., treat ourselves to some Applebee's. 6 p.m., Nighttime prayer, 7 p.m., hey, everyone get back and get that homework done so you're ready to school. Maybe that's my day, and I could use that day to catch up and, and get by. Um, that, doesn't, that doesn't get what Jesus was getting at when he challenged us to Sabbath. A joy-stacked Sabbath would look more like this. Sleep in till 11 a.m., Eat unlimited Lucky Charms and bacon for breakfast. 1 p.m. Tea time, beach trip, hike, or guilty pleasure TV. 3 to 6 p.m. Each family member does whatever they want, and we leave each other alone. 6 p.m. Dinner with our best food, best drink, and Cheesecake Factory cheesecake that we don't have to share. 7 p.m. We put a movie on that we've all been wanting to see. Now listen, 
I don't know if that's your idea of a good time, but what I'm trying to explain to you is you on a Sabbath, if you're doing it right, should build a joy that, or a day that is marked by full and total joy. If you're doing Sabbath right, you would answer these questions. What does a day of rest look like? What activities are pure joy for my family and I? What could we put on this day to make, a, make it the highlight of our week? It's interesting. Uh, in Israel, I mean, this is not new. This is something that uh, Jewish culture, that they still practice, that's in Israel. And they're known to do Sabbath so well. You can look at the trends. And in Israel, mortality rates are actually lower on the Sabbath. Think about that. Less people die on the Sabbath. Because <laughs> the thought there is, oh, I know my time is short but I got to get one more Sabbath in before I leave this. I got to be with my people. I got to eat that meal one more time. I got to hang with my friends. We got to get one more game of Mario Kart in and then I'm out. Because it's a day of joy. And the question is, what would happen if you added this spiritual practice to your life? Well, as a community, we're going to answer that. Because... On September 26th, we are practicing Sabbath Sunday. I'm already ahead of you. You're going, all right, sounds great, Matt, but I don't have time. That's why I'm putting time back in your schedule. And on September 26th, we are not going to be having worship services, but we are going to be having an event called Sabbath Sunday. It is not an event where you come to Manavai. It's not an event where we will be together. It is an event where you and yours take a day, fill it with joy, and experience the goodness of Sabbath. Because we believe in this. We want to be a people of rest in a world marked by exhaustion. And Sabbath is the way we're going to get there. Now, I tell you that to tell you this. This is my last story, and we'll wrap. I was 27 years old, the first time I had ever lost $3,000. Uh, one of my best friends in the entire world, some of you know him, his name's Tony Collins, was in missionary with his wife, Kelsey, or was in New Zealand as a missionary with his wife, Kelsey, Britt and I. Uh, great friends with them all through college, and we had saved up. I mean, we were dirt poor, and we had saved up everything we had to get some tickets to New Zealand so we could go visit them. Uh, it would be one of the first big international trips for Brett and I, and we had a hookup. See, uh, one of our friends worked at another missionary organization. She was a travel agent for them. She said, hey, I got the software that'll get you a deal on the tickets. Hey, I can get you the great schedule through, through Australia, straight out of L.A. in there, and you guys can go, and it'll be incredible. And we booked the tickets, and we were excited about our trip, and we couldn't wait for it. And then all of a sudden, I got a confirmation email saying, your trip is ready to go tomorrow. The only problem was the trip wasn't tomorrow. It was a couple months later, and I find out my friend had booked the wrong tickets. And after much drama and many phone calls, 
We found out there was no way we could get our money back. And that one hurt, yo, because I had never lost $3,000 before. My friend says, I'll figure it out, I'll pay you back, I'll make it happen. We didn't know what to do that day. We were just focused on what we should do next. And I remember calling a friend. And I said, I don't know what to do. And he's like, well, you're still going to go, right? I said, bro, I... I don't, I don't, I mean, we got to, we could buy the tickets again, but that would drain our savings and I can't afford to go. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, I think you're wrong, Matt. I don't think you can afford not to go. And those words changed everything for me. Here's a picture of the trip. And we bit the bullet We bought the tickets a second time, and we went for it. And had we not, I would have never experienced getting out of the Sydney airport, driving on the wrong side of the road, and seeing the Sydney Opera House with Brit. I would have never experienced bungee jumping in Queenstown, where bungee jumping was invented. I would have never experienced watching the Rugby World Cup when the All Blacks won, when we were actually in New Zealand. I would have never experienced this meal that I could barely afford at Queenstown that was an amazing memory that Brit and I will have forever. Here's what I'll tell you. There were so many moments and memories that we now have because we went for it. And guys, I'll tell you the same thing about your Sabbath. I don't think you can afford not to do it because there are real moments, real encounters with God, and real memories you'll make with you and the people you love when this is something you lean into. We want to be people of rest in a world marked by exhaustion. Time now to start getting ready for your Sabbath. It's just two weeks away. Love you guys. Have a great week. Peace.